In the Renaissance, many men sought their fortune with the sword. Many died a violent and anonymous death, but a rare few covered their names with glory. The Italians called these men the condottieri. These are their stories. Part 1. Back in Bologna. In the fall of 1510, Guido Rangoni traveled to Bologna to meet with Pope Julius II. Across the land, the year's grapes had been crushed and were now transforming into wine. Late fall was the time for getting the pigs fat on acorns and chestnuts. It would soon be time to slaughter them. Guido Rangoni had to wonder if he was heading to a slaughter himself. Pope Julius had summoned Guido to Bologna, supposedly to talk. But Guido didn't trust him. The Pope had kept Guido excommunicated for four years and only lifted that excommunication recently when fate put them on the same side of the current war, allied against France. Guido Rangoni was a captain in the service of Venice, and so, theoretically, the Pope would not wish to anger Venice by killing one of their captains. Theoretically. Yet Guido couldn't count much on Venice for support either. A powerful group of Venetian nobles didn't trust Guido, wanted him gone, did not believe him loyal to Venice, would not have complained if the Pope had taken him back to Rome and sent Guido swimming in the Tiber River with his arms wrapped in chains. Still, Guido Rangoni had come to Bologna despite the risk. What feelings must have stirred in his heart at the sight of Bologna's soaring towers rising from the city, or the red glow of its tile roofs in the autumn light? were all the other sights and smells that meant one thing, home. Guido had grown up in Bologna. As a proud youth, he had swaggered along its flagstone streets. As an adolescent, he had fought with sword and buckler in its fencing halls. Then his family, the Bentivoglio, had been driven into exile by Pope Julius II. Now Guido was back. The Pope had summoned all members of the Rangoni clan to meet in Bologna. On his mother's side, Guido was a Bentivoglio, but, as you can tell by his name, he was a member of the Rangoni family through his father. And the Rangoni family were a big deal in the nearby city of Modena. And the city of Modena just happened to become a big deal in the Pope's plans for conquest in the coming year. The Pope needed to make peace between the different factions of the Rangoni family. The Pope particularly needed to speak to Gerard Rangoni and Guido. Gerard and Guido were the respective leaders of the two main factions in Modena. The Pope was planning an offensive against the Duke of Ferrara, and the city of Modena was in a strategic place for this attack. He needed peace in the city. He could not afford to keep a large garrison there to maintain order. Things had been tumultuous in Modena ever since the previous summer. During that summer, Gerard Rangoni had betrayed his previous lord, the Duke of Ferrara, and opened a city gate to the army of the Pope. In exchange, the Pope had let Gerard Rangoni become the governor of Modena. 
But there were two problems with this arrangement. The first was that Gerard was using the office to go after his political opponents and to wreak vengeance on those he thought had wronged him in the past. The second problem was even bigger. Gerard had gained Modena through treachery, and everyone hates a traitor. Many people in Modena, even supporters of the Pope, despised Gerard Rangoni, the traitor. In what poor relief he stood compared to Guido. Gerard was the kind of man to betray his lords. Guido was the kind of man who protected his lords, even when all of Italy was looking to kill them. Guido was a man with honor and a sword. Gerard stood for the stab in the back, the poison in the glass. With no moral authority, Gerard could not keep the peace, even with a substantial papal force on the ramparts and in the city streets. If anyone bothered to record the conversation that occurred between the Pope and these two men, it hasn't survived the centuries. But we can be sure it probably went something like this. Your, Your Holiness, I've done everything humanly possible to keep peace in Modena. The citizens are happy to be free of their former Dieste tyrants. They wish only to live in peace. But Guido here won't let them live in peace. He conspires against you. His Bentivoglio relatives just attacked Bologna from Spilimberto. This little twerp's old castle. What do you have to say about Gerard's accusations, Count Guido? <sighs> Sorry, I drifted off once Gerard started telling bedtime stories. Let me guess, it uh, went something like this. It's all Guido's fault. He's conspiring with Hannibal Bentivoglio to take Modena away from you. And what do you say to that? I say he lies. That's no surprise. Gerard has never had the courage for the sword. He prefers the dagger in the back. Do you see, your holiness? He seeks to provoke me with insults. He does not want you to see the truth. His friends in Modena sent troops to support the Bentivoglio. His friends in Spilimberto opened the castle gates to your enemies. Are we so stupid as to believe that Guido Rangoni is not the spider at the center of the web of lies? Not all of us spin webs, Gerard. Your Holiness, if I wanted Modena, you would know because there would be an army following my battle flag to the city gates, and I would win. Watch your words, Count Guido. Forgive me, Your Holiness. Unlike my cousin, I fight with the sword and not my tongue. Gerard will pour honey on his words, but the people of Modena will not be fooled. They know him for the traitorous dog that he is. I betray no one. I helped free Modena from the vile Duke of Ferrara. Gerard performed a great service for us. If you wanted to free Modena, Gerard, then you should have taken your weapons and your men outside the city and joined the army of his holiness, like a man. There's a joke going around in Modena about him, your holiness. It goes like this. What's the difference between Gerard Rangoni and an outhouse? An outhouse isn't completely full of shit. Your holiness! Your holiness will never have peace in Modena with Gerard in charge. Part 2. The Warrior Pope Hugo Popoli had spent two years in the dark and dank cells under the Castel Sant'Angelo, a prisoner, a hostage. But at the end of 1510, the Pope decided he had a better use for Hugo. 
For the Pepoli family of Bologna, New Year's Eve in 1511 was a day of joy. Pope Julius had come to the conclusion that Hugo Pepoli was more useful out of prison, and so Hugo and the other members of the family finally returned home. This reunion was going to be a short one, though. Hugo was going to be serving under the Pope's banner, and the Pope was planning to make 1511 a busy year for his army. 1511 was going to be the year he crushed the Duke of Ferrara. In 1510, the Pope had sought to take down the Duke of Ferrara with a big right hook, but the Duke had proven to be too skilled a counterpuncher for that to work. But in 1511, Julius was going to put a chokehold on the Duke so tight he could not escape from it. Right now, French reinforcements could only pass into Ferrara through a narrow corridor of land around the fortress of Mirandola. Pope Julius planned to take Mirandola. The Duke of Ferrara was going to be surrounded, with Venetian forces squeezing in from the east, and the Pope's army squeezing in from the west. The Duke would have no option but to tap out. But plans are one thing. Deeds are another. Mirandola was a well-fortified town. The heart of its defense was its legendary citadel. This was a modern fortress, updated as recently as 1500. Rumor held that Mirandola was impregnable. Pope Julius intended to put that rumor to the test. He first ordered his nephew to capture Mirandola. This was the 21-year-old Duke of Urbino. He was the same man that had conquered the fortress of Russi in our third episode. The Duke of Urbino led the papal army against Mirandola, but without success. Mirandola was a much tougher nut to crack than Rusi had been. The Duke of Urbino told his uncle that Mirandola was perhaps indeed impregnable. Well, Julius understood that if you want something done right, you better do it yourself. And he wanted Mirandola. But he was 69 years old and sick, too sick to ride a horse even. It was wintertime, and the land was colder than a witch's tit. His doctors insisted that he stay in Bologna. But such was his determination to crush Ferrara, Julius decided to go from Bologna to Mirandola to take charge himself. If he was too sick to ride, he could be carried in a litter. If he was too cold, he could cover himself with blankets. Hugo Popoli had only been a free man in Bologna for three days before it was time to saddle up and head to Mirandola. Enemies of the Pope were legion inside of Bologna. They quickly brought word to the Duke of Ferrara and his French allies that the Pope was leaving the safety of the city walls and venturing to Mirandola. He would be exposed. He would be vulnerable. The Duke of Ferrara and the Chevalier Bayard immediately assembled a force of Ferraris and French knights and set out to capture or kill the Pope. As they drew nearer to Hugo Popoli and the Pope, the Almighty took a hand in events. A blinding snowstorm swept through the land. With the world gone white, with a man unable to see more than a few feet in front of him, just navigating was a Herculean endeavor. To get out of the snow, the Pope's force took shelter in a fortress. Now there was no way for the Duke of Ferrara and the Chevalier Bayard to capture the Pope. A few days later, Hugo Popoli and the rest of the army delivered the Pope safely to the camp outside Mirandola. Many on both sides of the siege would curse the day the Pope arrived. For once present in person, Pope Julius quickly discovered the reason for the failure of his army to take the city. It was, if you'll pardon the language, a giant clusterfuck. 
In the early 1500s, there were many ways to assault and conquer a fortress. Artillery could be brought to bear against the walls. Mines could be tunneled beneath the walls. Assault trenches could be dug toward the walls, along with a whole host of other strategies. Or, of course, your army could just sit around on its rear end and hope the enemy gives up. This seemed to be the strategy the Duke of Urbino had chosen. Wrath may be a sin, but that never stopped Julius from giving in to it. Despite his frail constitution, he was soon everywhere in the camp, abusing his men for their sloth. The Duke of Urbino himself thought it a fitting time to be somewhere else, anywhere else, really. The Pope's tongue lashings were so abusive that one soldier writing home refused to commit to paper the vile insults the Pope was dishing out. Neither sleet nor snow could stop Pope Julius from forcing his men to build siege works, nor could enemy snipers stop his holiness. Julius had constantly to watch out for gunfire for Mirandola. The snipers always seemed to know where he was. The Venetians in the camp were convinced that Julius's own men were betraying his position to the enemy. The gunners never did hit Pope Julius, but they did manage to wound one of his courtiers with an arquebus ball. The Duke of Urbino could not hide forever. Once he resurfaced, he blamed his failure on Hugo Popoli's old commander, John Paul Bayoni. People in the army seemed to think that this grizzled old veteran, Bayoni, was the real commander and not the Duke of Urbino. The Pope sent John Paul Bayoni away from the siege. We can't know whether Hugo Popoli joined Bayoni or if he remained for the drama unfolding at Mirandola. And what a drama it was. Under the Pope's constant harangues, his force was finally able to plant their cannons near enough to the town to begin firing upon it. Within 48 hours, the impregnable fortress ran up the white flag. The Pope made terms with the surrendered garrison. To be spared from looting, the Lady of Mirandola provided the Pope with a large indemnity meant to be distributed among the infantry of the papal army. But our old friend Melchiori, the priest Ramazzotto, was back with a new company of infantry, and he decided to ignore the Pope's deal and went into town to loot for himself. To put a stop to this, the Pope had himself hoisted over the walls and placed into the city. Once inside Mirandola, the Pope managed to keep the looting from turning into an all-out sack of the town. His leadership of the army at Mirandola would forever be the signature event of his papacy. It would be the moment that would make him known to history as the warrior pope. Ferrara was now completely isolated from their powerful French ally. It would not be long, the pope thought, until the Duke of Ferrara surrendered. To get a ringside seat for this event, the pope traveled to Ravenna. Hugo wanted to rejoin the company of John Paul Bayoni, but Pope Julius still did not trust the Papoli family. Julius forced Hugo Papoli to remain in his entourage. Like the old saw says, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Events in northern Italy would soon force Pope Julius to trust Hugo Papoli, whether he liked it or not. Part 3, Guido Rangoni's Little Adventure While Hugo Popoli played his part in the famous Siege of Mirandola, Guido Rangoni was engaged in his own little fight. Unlike the Siege of Mirandola, Guido Rangoni's game on the Adige River 
in the winter of 1511 was never going to grace the pages of a famous history. No painter was going to memorialize his deeds. But wars are decided as much by their anonymous little fights as they are by the great battles. In the winter of 1511, the French were determined to open a lifeline to the Duke of Ferrara. They had a strong base in Verona, with a powerful army. The Venetians were weak here. If there was one spot where the French could break through the ring of hostile fortresses that surrounded Ferrara, this was it. The French were using riverboats to build up an army downriver from Verona, an army that could capture the last Venetian fortresses between Verona and Ferrara. Andre Gritti, the hero of Padua, was the man tasked with stopping the French. He did not have much of an army, but he did have Guido Rangoni. When Gritti's spies in Verona told him that a large river fleet was going to leave the city soon and head down the Adige River, Gritti ordered Rangoni to stop them. It was winter and a good time to see how well the French could swim. Now, technically speaking, the French controlled the Adige River all the way between their base at Verona and the headquarters of the army that was going to go to Ferrara. But the Venetians had a fortress just a few miles away from the river. Guido Rangoni was here with his hard-riding mounted crossbowmen. He took his men and joined some stratioti, those were Greek-like cavalry armed with spears and shields and swords. The fast-moving cavalry then hooked up with a group of 300 foot soldiers. These were not professional soldiers, but mostly country folk with whatever weapons they had lying around. Their houses had been plundered, their women ravaged by the French, and it was time for some well-deserved payback. This force found a perfect spot for an ambush about 10 miles downstream from Verona. They came down to the river at dusk. To block the river, they knocked down three water mills on either side. They attached the water wheels together with chains and settled down to wait for the French. They waited and waited, all through the night and through the next day. No boats ever came. No enemy forces came either. Nothing. Nada. Niente. Had they been found out? Had their plan been discovered? Did the French have spies of their own in the Venetian camp? Guido had to know. Guido soon discovered the truth from a Venetian spy in Verona. It turned out the French boats had set off down the river, that they had been laden with hundreds of troops and their supplies, just as Gritty had told them they would be. But then the authorities in Verona had stopped them. The reason? It was not because the French had discovered Guido Rangoni's ambush. No, no. It turned out that the French had skipped out on paying rent for their houses. The whole operation had come to a stop because of that. The boats could not move until the French scrounged up enough gold to cover their debts. So the French forces had to travel downriver by land. Guido's force returned to lay in wait for the French, but the French were traveling on the opposite side of the Adige River from that of Guido. He did not want to try and send his troops across the river in the dark. He thought it a better idea to lure the French across the river. So Guido's force built up a large fire inside a massive oven. The fire from this oven shone through the dark winter night like a beacon. A fire meant plunder. But the French did not take the bait. They continued downriver by land. The jig was up now for the Venetians. The French now knew there were Venetian troops operating along the Adige River that there were enemy troops just waiting for the opportunity to ambush French barges on the river. Yet the French had no choice but to send men and supplies by boat.
The land around the Adige River was barren of food and fodder. An army traveling by land could not carry enough supplies to survive for long. Guido and his friends knew this. The French outfitted a gunboat to ply the Adige River. Instead of ambushing barges on the Adige River, Guido saw that the real coup was going to be capturing this boat. Then Venice would become masters of the river. So Guido and the other Venetians ignored the barges and followed the gunboat like a shadow in the desert. One fateful afternoon, this gunboat made the big mistake of pulling up for a rest at a river port just a few miles south of Verona. Guido Rangoni and company were on them. They ambushed the gunboat. The mounted crossbowmen got down from their horses and peppered the boat with crossbow bolts. Infantry hurled spears at the gunboat. They were able to kill any of the rowers that tried to pull the boat away, but they could not get close to the boat. The gunboat was armed with cannons, and these belched death whenever the Venetians grew close. Peasants in the area heard the battle. They took what weapons they had around the house, then came to investigate. The Republic of Venice still commanded loyalty in the occupied areas, and these peasants gladly took the opportunity to fight. Many had nothing more than simple bows for hunting rabbits, but there were so many, and they were so determined that the gunners finally surrendered. Venice now had its own gunboat on the Adige River, with their cavalry operating along the banks and a river Dominated by the gunboat, the French lost all opportunity to break through to Ferrara. The Duke of Ferrara was on his own now. Part 4. Too Close to the Sun The great lady of Mantua, Isabella d'Este, was up nights over the terrible situation in Ferrara. The Duke of Ferrara was her brother, after all. She dreaded the thought of seeing him cast out of the family's ancestral lands, or worse, seeing his head sticking from a spike on the walls of the city itself. Nothing would have given her greater pleasure than to see her brother defeat the Pope and send his forces back to Rome in shame. Yet with each passing day, the likelihood of this happening just seemed to grow more and more dim. The Venetians' allies of the Pope were practically knocking at the gates of Ferrara. Only a single fortress now held them at bay, the great fortress protecting the waterways into Ferrara, a fortress known simply as the Bastion. The king of Spain was sending troops to help the Venetians conquer this bastion. The pope was also sending troops, as well as sappers, to destroy the walls from below. Isabella was concerned not only about the lands of her brother, of her birth family, but also the lands of her children, Mantua. Once the pope conquered Ferrara, Mantua would be next on his shopping list. In theory, she was allies with the pope. But her brother, the Duke of Ferrara, had also been allies with the Pope. The Duke of Ferrara had been the flag-bearer of the papal army. The Duke of Ferrara had received the Golden Rose from Rome, the award given to the Pope's most faithful subject. And yet, as quick as a venomous scorpion, 
Julius had turned on the Duke of Ferrara. He had decided he had no further use for the Duke. He had decided that Ferrara would look better with the crossed keys of the Pope flying from its battlements than the silver eagle of the Deste family. So the Pope had woven together an alliance to conquer Ferrara. And once His Holiness, the Beast of Rome, swallowed Ferrara, what would he do next? Would he be satisfied? No. Or would he cast his covetous gaze upon the city of Mantua, the beautiful city in the heart of northern Italy? Isabella was a brilliant woman. She knew the Pope would invent some justification to add Mantua to the domain of Rome. But what could she do? Her eldest son, her beloved son, was being held as a hostage by the Pope. In our last episode, we talked about how Isabella had been forced to send her son to Rome because her husband had been a prisoner of the Venetians. She'd had to send her son away in order to free her husband. Julius used the veiled threat of killing her son to make sure that Isabella and her husband, the Marquis of Mantua, remained good little lambs. But then as now good little lambs get roasted and eaten. Things were getting even worse inside the city of Ferrara. Trouble was brewing. There was a small detachment there of French knights and infantry. These French troops were known for their arrogance and for treating the citizens of Ferrara, for treating their allies as though they were nothing more than a conquered people. The Ferraris had no choice but to put up with their guests' bad manners, for they were desperate and they knew it. But when some French troops took liberties with a Ferrari's lady, the citizens of the beleaguered city could bear it no more. A riot broke out between the Ferraris and the French. This riot left 14 Frenchmen dead in the streets and 50 more bleeding in the gutters. Would the French and Ferraris still fight on behalf of the Duke in the future? That seemed unlikely. Isabella had to do something. There was some good news. Hannibal Bentivoglio, Guido Rangoni's uncle, was serving with the French army beyond Mirandola. He was doing what he did best, raising large groups of infantry and training them up. Hannibal stood in good repute to the French, both for his skill as a commander and for his political importance in northern Italy. At that time, Hannibal and Isabella d'Este were technically enemies. But they were close. Hannibal was married to Isabella's most trusted confidant, her sister. Through Hannibal, Isabella was able to communicate a vital message to the French general. If he was to demand passage through the territory of Mantua, she could convince her husband, the Marquis of Mantua, to allow them through. Mantua was just upriver from Ferrara. Permission to traverse the territory would allow them to bypass the Pope's fortresses that kept the French army away from Ferrara. It was a desperate gamble. Isabella had cast her son's life onto the pile of chips in the great game. But at stake was her son's patrimony, Mantua, something far more valuable than his life. It was, after all, always easier to make new children than it was to replace a principality. In late January of 1511, the French general sent a note to Mantua. He informed the Marquis that the French were going to pass through his lands. If the Marquis resisted, the French would bring fire and death to Mantua. 
Isabella convinced her husband that it would be foolish to resist the mighty legions of France with the meager resources of Mantua. So the Marquis told Pope Julius he had to have reinforcements. Without them, he could not defend his lands from the French. But of course, the Pope didn't have the forces to spare. The Bentavoglio and their French allies were allowed to pass peaceably through the lands of Mantua. We can follow the movement of this force a bit. Venetian sources talk about ominous movements of troops going through the swampy, barely settled no-man's land of the upper Polesine between Mantua and Ferrara. Venetian sources soon reported the appearance of fresh troops in Ferrara. But what was their intent? They could strike at any one of half a dozen places. Or maybe they were just here to reinforce the defenses of Ferrara itself. Before the Venetians could figure out what this army planned to do, it struck. Led by Hannibal Bentivoglio and the Duke of Ferrara's favorite general, this force came out of the mists on a foggy day and routed the Venetian forces that were besieging the bastion. They killed something like three to 5,000 Venetian and Spanish troops that day. In a single morning, the game had changed in Ferrara. No longer was the Duke of Ferrara on the ropes. Now the Duke, the French, and the Bentivoglio could look to attack. Bologna was a mere 25 miles from Ferrara. Once again, Bologna was vulnerable to the Bentivoglio. In seeking to conquer Ferrara, Pope Julius had flown too close to the sun, and like Icarus, his wings were melting. But would Pope Julius plunge to the earth too? Isabella had saved her brother, the Duke. She had saved Mantua for her husband and her children. Fortunately for her, the Pope had taken a real liking to her eldest son. Though he was furious with Isabella, he did not kill the boy. For Isabella herself, this incident would mark the zenith of her influence in Mantua, at least until her husband finally succumbed to syphilis. History makes no mention of her arranging for the French to pass through Mantua en route to Ferrara. Officially... Isabella was uninvolved in the political situation. Officially, she had been minding women's business, seeing to her children and her household. But her contemporaries saw through this facade, saw her handiwork in arranging for her husband to allow the French to save the lands of her brother and thus save the lands of her children. In the councils of Venice, in the courts of northern Italy, they began to accuse her husband of the greatest failing of a Renaissance prince that he was under his wife's thumb, that he was her creature. The Marquis was forced to distance himself from her. Six, showdown in Bologna. After his army was whooped outside the bastion, things were looking down for Pope Julius. His enemies had a base in Ferrara, and now they had strong forces stationed there too. Hundreds of knights and thousands of infantry, all full of confidence after crushing the Pope's army, hungry for another fight. They were just 25 miles away from Bologna, the apple of Pope Julius's eye. 
The Pope's own forces were scattered and demoralized. His line of defense, that network of castles and fortresses he had so carefully constructed, was now crumbling. And when the famous Venetian condottieri and rogue paladin, Brother Leonardo, was killed by a group of French knights, Julius knew it was time for a new strategy. He did what every ruler in his situation would have done, or at least tried to do. He called time out. Let's talk peace, he said, and went to Bologna to receive other leaders. The Germans had been pushing for a peace settlement for some time now. They were tired of this war. The emperor, no money Max, sent his representative, a man known as Cardinal Long, to negotiate. This man hoped to meet the pope in Mantua, but the pope refused to leave Bologna. Cardinal Long hung around long enough in Mantua to amuse Isabella d'Este and her ladies. He made them laugh until their sides ached, or so they reported, not with his sardonic wit, but because one of Isabella's friends kept tricking the cardinal into talking about sex and sodomy in Italian. His efforts to convince Julius to come to Mantua were similarly a joke. Eventually, Long went on down to Bologna to meet the Pope. A few days of useless talks ensued. Nothing came from it. Nothing could come from it. The Pope had no interest in peace. He still thought he could gain Ferrara and keep Bologna. His words of peace were nothing more than a timeout to regather his forces. By the late spring of 1511, two months after his forces were routed outside the bastion, the Pope was ready to fight again. Hugo Popoli was now definitely back in Bologna, serving the Pope. We cannot know his exact role. But it's safe to say that Hugo Popoli was serving in the militias of Bologna. The walls of Bologna were five miles long. Too long for the garrison that the Pope had in town. The people of Bologna were armed to the teeth, and the Pope needed men from Bologna, top men, to lead the militias. Men from a prestigious Bolognese family. Men with a reputation for courage. Men skilled in arms and the ability to lead in battle. Men like Hugo Popoli. Pope Julius thought the two men's respite would allow his forces time to recover. He thought they would be strong enough to take on the French. He still thought he could add Ferrar to the papal domain in 1511. He thought wrong. Within two weeks of hostilities resuming, the Pope's line of defenses to the west of Bologna failed. Mirandola, taken so gloriously in winter, quickly returned to the domain of the French. The fortresses that had so frustrated the French before now fell like little pearls from a broken necklace. The French forces came east toward Bologna, toward Hugo Popoli and the Pope. Of more immediate concern to Pope Julius were the forces of the Duke of Ferrara and the Bentavoglio operating out of Ferrara. These were ranging down to the east side of Bologna and threatening to trap the Pope in the city. The Pope thought this would be a nice time to take the sea air at Ravenna, away from the coming battle, before his enemies could completely cut the road from Bologna to the sea. To protect him on the journey, he took his retinue and a thousand of his infantrymen. This left only another thousand infantry to guard the city. Barely enough men to stop smugglers. To defend the city, Alidosi and the Pope depended upon the militias of Bologna, on Hugo Popoli, a man Cardinal Alidosi had once sent off to the Pope's jail for 18 months. The city of Bologna grew increasingly restive as the French army grew closer to Bologna, as the Bentavoglio began recruiting in the areas outside the city. Allies of the Bentavoglio, long silent in Bologna, became vocal once again in calling for their return. Is it any wonder that with a mere thousand of infantry and a hundred light cavalry that Cardinal Alidosi sought out reinforcements? 
Casting about for troops to add to his forces, desperate for reinforcements, he found a commander, an infantry leader with 2,000 Spanish troops, a commander with a reputation as an effective commander of infantry. We are speaking, of course, of Melchiori the priest Ramazzotto. You remember him, right? After the conquest of Brizigella, his men got into a fight with their Spanish allies over loot. Killed a couple of them, too. After the Venetians were crushed at Policella, his men got into a fight with some French allies and killed 40 of them. Over loot, of course. After the siege of Mirandola, the Pope tried to stop him from looting the town. Tried and failed, since Ramazzotto's men looted some 2,000 ducats worth from the city. With 2,000 of his Spanish infantry under Ramazzotto's command, Alidosi would not need to depend nearly so much upon Hugo Popoli and the dicey Bolognese garrison for his support. Hugo Popoli would have warned him against bringing the priest into the city. He would have warned him against the danger of Ramazzotto. The year before, the priest and his men had looted every house on a 15-mile stretch of road between Bologna and Modena. With the Pope no longer in the city, Bologna was teetering on the edge, and bringing the priest into the city was likely to push them over. Yet Ramazzotto's Spanish troops were soon seen entering the gates of Bologna. It seems as if Ramazzotto took to his old looting ways within hours of entering the city. Beyond the walls of Bologna stood the army of the Pope, under the command of the Duke of Urbino, nephew of the Pope, the kid that no soldier respected. Alidosi and the Duke of Urbino would argue about what happened next. We do know it started when the French launched a surprise attack on the army of the Duke of Urbino. Then the people of Bologna took arms from their houses and went to the streets and the ramparts, not in support of the Pope, but in support of the coming of the Bentavoglio. They may have heard of the approaching French army or just wanted revenge on the priest and his men. Whatever their reasons, the outcome was the same. They raged against the forces of Aladosi. The 2,000 Spanish infantry that Aladosi depended upon to control the city, they were outfought by the Bolognese fighting for their homes. The priest soon led his men out of the city, away from Bologna. Better to live and to loot another day. The people of Bologna were victorious. They sent messengers to the Bentavoglio to come and form a new government in the city. The Bentavoglio were in the city almost immediately. As they came in one gate, Cardinal Alidosi fled out another. Once the Duke of Urbino discovered that Alidosi had fled the city, he ordered a retreat. But it was too late for that. The retreat became a route that left behind thousands of dead Venetian and papal soldiers. This infuriated the Duke. In the days to come, Cardinal Alidosi would refuse to take responsibility for his actions. He blamed the loss of Bologna on the Duke of Urbino. This would be too heavy of a cross to bear for the hot-headed Duke. He accosted Cardinal Alidosi in the streets of Ravenna a couple days later, right outside where the Pope was staying at the time. The Duke drew his sword and then plunged it through the Cardinal's red robes and into his body. Guido the Great was there. He was supposed to be the Cardinal's bodyguard but he did all of nothing to stop the murder. The cardinal died soon thereafter. Few tears would be shed over his demise. In Bologna, people celebrated the passing of this most hated minister of the Pope. But now we're really getting ahead of ourselves. We have to go back a few days. We have to talk about Hugo Popoli. On the day when Alidosi fled, on the day when the Duke of Urbino was defeated by the French outside Bologna, Hugo Popoli was in the city itself a commander in the militia of Bologna. 
For five years, Bologna had lived fitfully under the rule of the Pope. In a single day, seemingly in a single hour, the whole situation changed. It happened so rapidly that many of the people of Bologna who had been part of Alidosi's government were unable to flee. Hugo Popoli refused to leave them to their fate, refused to let them be torn apart by the angry mob going through the streets. Instead, Hugo Popoli took control of the hated citadel in the heart of town. He made it a sanctuary for those terrified of the coming of the Bentavoglio. The Bentavoglio and their French allies laid siege to this citadel. Within a few days, the citadel was forced to surrender. Hugo Popoli had to place his life and the lives of those under his protection into the care of the Bentavoglio family. After the trials and tribulations of the Bentavoglio family in exile, all of Bologna, all of Italy, in fact, expected a bloodbath. Hadn't their war cry once been, payback is a bitch? But Hannibal Bentavoglio had done a lot of thinking in the last five years, thinking about how he would run Bologna. He wanted a city free of fear. He let Hugo Popoli and the other men in the citadel go free. He would not be so forgiving of the citadel itself. It was an affront to traditional Bolognese liberties. The Bentavoglio had never been the kind of family to rule from a fortress in the city. They had lived amongst their people. Hannibal urged a mob to tear the citadel down. The people of Bologna needed little prodding to destroy it. This symbol of their former captivity under the Pope was taken away in the course of a few days. The second change Hannibal sought to make was a direct insult at Pope Julius himself. For five years, the bronze statue of Julius, sculpted by Michelangelo, had stood in the city's main cathedral. The statue of Julius with a sword in one hand served as a mute warning to the Bolognese people, a reminder of what the Pope would do if they allowed the Bentavoglio to return. A mob, prodded by Hannibal Bentavoglio, tore down this statue. The people of Bologna shipped the pieces of the statue to Ferrara. There, the bronze was melted down and cast into a great cannon. The Duke of Ferrara named this cannon the Julius. He looked forward to the day he could introduce this cannon to its namesake. A more important order of business was getting Guido Rangoni back to Bologna. The Bentavoglio had always planned for Guido to be the captain general of Bologna. They sent word to Guido, who was still around Verona, word for him to come home immediately. The moment they had all waited for, that they had all worked so hard for, had finally come to pass. It was time for Guido to come home, decked with laurels, and ready to lead the men of Bologna in battle. always been destined for a fine career as a condottiere. Yet the opportunity to become captain general of the Bolognese army would drive his destiny further forward than any other single event. By 1511, he was 26 years old with 10 years of faultless military command behind him. He had led mounted crossbowmen repeatedly against larger and more powerful French and German forces. He had fought the famous Chevalier Bayard to a standstill, 
around Verona. He had demonstrated the ability to organize and to train light cavalry as well. But doubts had always lingered about his loyalty to Venice. As the captain general of the Bolognese army, he could put all of that behind him. But he ended up declining Hannibal Bentivoglio's offer. He declined the offer to become captain general of Bologna. Guido Rangoni preferred to remain in the service of Venice. Venice was so pleased that they gave him command of another company of mounted crossbowmen. This would be just the beginning of the additional responsibilities they would entrust to him. Guido was on the fast track to the top now. The Bentivoglio had made peace with the Malvezzi clan, but Lucius Malvezzi would not be able to return to Bologna. He was in the late stages of syphilis and slowly circling the drain into oblivion. This gave the Venetians two problems. They would need to replace him as their leading general. Picking a candidate would take some serious thinking on their part. But they also had a more immediate problem of what to do with the 75 men-at-arms of Lucius Malvezzi's company. Before the Bentivoglio offer of command, Guido Rangoni would never have been trusted with the company of Lucius Malvezzi. But now the doubts about Guido's loyalty were put to bed. He seemed a natural fit for the job. Many of Malvezzi's men were likely to be from the area around Bologna. Guido Rangoni spoke the same dialect as them. Furthermore, Rangoni had a reputation for dash and for courage. And finally, Rangoni descended from a famous and noble family, an important element of prestige when leading knights into battle. Command over men-at-arms was a big step forward for Guido. With 75 men-at-arms under his banner, he would be leading one of the largest companies of men-at-arms in Venetian service. It would mark a change in role for him, too. He was used to being a light cavalry commander that rode hard into the enemy's rear areas, only to dash away when the enemy responded. The men-at-arms, the professional knights, these were a different beast altogether. They weren't made, really, for raiding. The men-at-arms usually attacked an enemy where he was strongest and broke him. They were like the tanks of a Renaissance army. It would take Guido a little time to grow into this new role. Guido's next mission called for dash and for surprise. So naturally, he would have to leave his new command behind on this mission. The Venetians had information that an important enemy commander with a vast payroll for the French army was going to visit the town of Suave, well behind enemy lines. Guido ordered his crossbowmen to mount up. He joined them with a group of Balkan light cavalry. And to give the force some serious staying power, he joined forces with his friend, Sebastian Manzino. Sebastian was the brother of the fearless Mancino de Bologna that we featured in our second episode, and the same kind of blood flowed through his veins. As the famous chronicler Sanudo noted, Sebastian was the finest infantry commander in Venetian service at the time. This mixed force of cavalry and of infantry set off moving at a rapid pace through the night. They were going deep behind enemy lines. As the sun rose the next morning, the town of Suave found itself under siege. As it was well away from the front lines, this was a huge surprise to the small garrison inside. There were two gates in the town, and at both of these, cavalry was stirring up noise and trying to get into the town. Under the cover of crossbow fire, the cavalrymen tried to ignite the gates of the town. 
the town shot off its cannons in the hopes of summoning reinforcements. The forces on the walls called for reinforcements from the town citadel. Distracted and frightened by the cavalry attacking the gates, the garrison never thought to protect the citadel itself. But the citadel was the goal of the whole attack. Sebastian Manzino and his infantry had brought scaling ladders with them. While the garrison focused on the trouble at the gates, Manzino's men scaled the backside of the town. Some of his men scaled to the battlements, but Manzino took his ladder all the way up into the citadel itself. The ring of sword on sword soon sang from the walls in the citadel. The defenders cried, Fight well! Inspired by this unusual cry, Sebastian shouted the same thing to his men. The infantrymen of Manzino possessed the greater skill. They pressed the enemy back or slew them where they stood. Then they took to the normal Venetian cry of Marco, Marco, as they saw the battle going their way. A group of enemy men-at-arms tried to break through the gate where Guido was commanding his light cavalry. With swords and crossbows and spears, his light cavalry defeated the enemy men-at-arms and drove them back into the town, taking them from their horses. They forced the lucky ones to surrender. There is no mention of infantry being taken prisoner at Suave, so those that tried to surrender were probably put to the sword. The Venetians had little time to lose. There were strong enemy forces both in front and behind them. They were off again as quickly as they had come. Unfortunately, the enemy payroll had not been in Suave, but the prisoners they dragged back to camp were going to fetch them some decent ransoms, or so they hoped. All in all, it had been a victory as smooth and sweet as the golden wine the town of Suave is famous for. Popoli and the Exiles of Bologna. Hugo Popoli was also moving on up in the world of the Condottieri. The reason was simple. Lucius Malvezzi, the head general of the Venetian army, was now dead. Venice needed a new general, so they chose a man that we've spoken of before named John Paul Bayoni. Now you might be asking yourself, what does that have to do with Hugo? Before Hugo's imprisonment in the Castel Sant'Angelo, he had been a man-at-arms in the service of John Paul Bayoni. The two had worked together in fighting against the Bentavoglio family and the bandits that supported them around Bologna. Hugo Popoli had impressed John Paul Bayoni. As part of his deal with Venice, John Paul needed to recruit a company of 200 lances. That is, 200 men-at-arms, their squires, and their support personnel. 
and because Bayoni was leaving the service of the Pope, he needed to recruit this company almost completely from scratch. Now, this was a tougher task than it might appear. Where were you going to find 200 good knights that were not already working for someone else? Presumably, everyone that wanted to fight was already in someone's company, at least anyone worth having. Fortunately for John Paul Bayoni, the political situation in Bologna had turned sour. True, the Bentivoglio had come back and tried to make things peaceful in Bologna, but their allies had old scores to settle with friends of Cardinal Aladosi. This forced many a Bolognese family into exile. These exiles had money. These exiles had military skills. These exiles were just the kind of man John Paul Bayoni needed. Hugo Popoli remained personally on good terms with the Bentavoglio family, but his reputation among the Bolognese exiles was gold standard. He had risked his life to save the Mariscotti, the mortal enemies of the Bentavoglio. He had stayed in Bologna to protect the friends and allies of Cardinal Aladosi when he could have just as easily fled the city. Hugo Popoli recruited many of the exiles for Bayoni's company and made sure they were fit to fight. John Paul Bayoni left much of the task of putting his new company together to his two lieutenants, Hugo Popoli from Bologna and Octavian Fergoso from Genoa. Now, Octavian is going to become important later on in the saga of Hugo Popoli and Guido Rangoni. Bayoni himself had gone off to his hometown to do some recruiting of his own. To understand why this was, we must keep in mind one defining characteristic of Renaissance Italians. They were intensely patriotic, but their country consisted of the city of their birth and the small area around it. And among Renaissance condottieri, perhaps no one loved his hometown more than John Paul Bayoni from Perugia. As the leading general of the Venetian forces, he was given a chest full of gold to recruit the famous infantry of Brizighella in Romagna, near Bologna. Instead, John Paul Bayoni took that chest of gold to Perugia and recruited men of his own hometown. The new company of arms put together by Bayoni, Papoli, and Fergoso was a particularly strong one. In the eyes of the Venetians, it was better than all of their other companies of men-at-arms put together. And this force was assembling in Padua for the next Venetian attack against the French. Bayoni was delayed in going to Padua to see his men. He had first to go to Venice to receive the staff and the banner of the governor-general. And when his astrologer told him that a more propitious day for this ritual was coming up, Bayoni lingered in Venice to repeat the ritual of getting the staff and banner all over again. Hugo Popoli was in Padua with Bayoni's company, along with Guido Rangoni. No doubt Guido resented Popoli's rise to the top. Guido had climbed the ladder of success one bloody rung after another. Hugo Popoli had just taken the elevator.
Part 10, The Lady from Sex. After years pitted against one another, Guido Rangoni and Hugo Papoli were now on the same side. They were in the same camp together. They were allies of all things. But the rivalry between them would have still burned hard. We can be sure that Guido repeated many tales of his decisive victory over Guido Rangoni in the mountains of Bologna years before. Hugo would have made sure everyone knew that he had kicked Guido's ass. And Guido, being Guido, would not have lingered in camp for long. The French were on the retreat once again. While Hugo Popoli helped John Paul Bayoni assemble the army that would attack the French, Guido rode out hard to raise hell. The French had thoughts of retreating from the Venetian lagoon to Vicenza and then staying put. They wanted to make a stand there, because from Vicenza they could continue to menace the Venetian heartland. Guido was just as determined to make the French so miserable they would keep going past Vicenza and settle back in Verona once again. Under pressure from Guido Rangoni and other commanders, the French made many mistakes. Most notably, they overloaded one of their bridges during the retreat. The bridge collapsed, and the French had to abandon many of the troops on the wrong side of the river to the enemy. By the time the French made it back to Vicenza, they were in no condition to make a stand at all. They had no choice but to take their whole force further west to Verona, to leave Vicenza for Guido and the Venetians. The French left Vicenza, taking all of their troops with them. For the thankless job of commanding the city until the arrival of the Venetians, the French put in place a local woman. Her name was Isabella de Sessa. Yes, another Isabella. We can only guess at how she was the one put in charge. She had been married to a gentleman of Vicenza who was now a Venetian prisoner. Rumors had it that she was now bound in a bigamous union with a German governor. Her name literally meant Isabel from Sex, so it was only natural that she would become the target of scurrilous gossip. Not long after the French had departed, the main army of Venice left from Padua, the force with Hugo Popoli, and it quickly arrived outside Vicenza. There they met with the raiding forces of Guido Rangoni. The Venetians demanded that Vicenza open the gates of the city and surrender. Lady de Sesso was in a pickle. She had no troops to defend the city, nor could she depend upon a militia. Vicenza had ceased to care which power controlled it, but she had her pride. Lady de Sesso would not have had it said of her that she had surrendered without a shot being fired. She refused to open the gates of the city unless the Venetians actually unloosed their cannons at the walls. The irritated Venetians shot off a few cannons at the city. The drawbridges of Vicenza were duly lowered and a way into the city was opened. Hugo Popoli and Guido Rangoni followed John Paul Baglioni into the unfortunate city. Vicenza had been tossed back and forth so many times now that there was little in the way of loot to be had for the conquering army. The infantry would be disappointed. For the well-to-do, for the powerful, for the connected, there was still another source of revenue. Among the first things that Venice did in Vicenza was to seek out rebels and to seek out traitors. Venetian law held that their property was due to be confiscated. We don't know exactly how the land was disposed of, but we can be sure that the primary beneficiaries were wealthy and connected Venetians. Lady de Sesso was considered a traitor by the Venetians. She rightly pointed out that she had never taken any action against the interests of Venice. That was immaterial to Venice. The French had left her in charge. That was enough to make her a traitor. That was enough for the Venetians to have a reason to seize her property. She protested. She had merely taken the office of governor to surrender the city bloodlessly to Venice. 
and act very much in their interests. Her words fell upon deaf ears. After all, there was money to be made in confiscating her family's property. Too much money. And besides, she was just a harmless woman. What could she do? When Venice came to take possession of her house, she refused to leave. No problem. The Venetians just dragged Isabella into the street and left her there. Lady de Sesso left Vicenza with her son, swearing vengeance upon Venice. The Venetians were surely amused at this threat. They would not be laughing a year later when bandits and rebels under her orders controlled the countryside around Vicenza. But that is a story for our next episode. Part 11. The Siege of Bologna. Through the autumn of 1511, Guido and Hugo worked together on further operations for Venice. They helped Venice to reclaim land stolen by the French and by the Germans. All was going well for Venice now. Everything was roses and victory. The Pope was on their side, and he was bringing the forces of the King of Spain into their little game in northern Italy. We can safely say that Hugo and Guido got on well enough. But in December, a bone of contention got stuck in Hugo Papoli's throat. The source of the problem traced back to Modena, to the city near Bologna, to the hometown of the Rangoni clan. The uneasy truce between Guido's faction and Gerard's faction, the deal worked out in Bologna with the Pope, finally fell apart. Gangs of men took to the street with weapons, as they were wont to do in Italy. When all was said and done, Guido's faction had stormed the palace of Gerard Rangoni. They had looted or destroyed anything of value there, and they sent Gerard Rangoni fleeing from the city. Hugo Popoli suspected Guido was involved in the destruction of Gerard's palace. But there was little at the moment that Hugo Popoli could do to get back at Guido. But an opportunity for revenge was coming, and it would be coming soon. For that revenge, Hugo would owe a debt of gratitude to a French general known as the Thunderbolt. To understand why, we must visit Bologna once again. That turbulent city of towers was at the center of the maelstrom crossing Italy. The Pope hungered to regain the city. The loss of Bologna was the greatest crisis of his papacy. He was in such a deep mourning over the loss of Bologna that he refused to shave the first pope in centuries to sport a beard in public. He had brought the Spanish army into northern Italy to make it happen, to get Bologna back. This Spanish army was massive. The Spanish army could count upon 2,000 men-at-arms, more knights than the French and their allies combined. They possessed an equal number of light cavalry for scouting and for skirmishing, but the core of the Spanish army was its infantry. Unlike the infantry of France or Italy, many of the Spanish infantrymen came from noble families. Proud families. Families with a military background who had fallen on hard times. Families who passed on to their sons a proud legacy to uphold. These Spanish had fought toe-to-toe with the French army before and sent them running like so many rabbits. This army first captured the bastion, that fortress outside of Ferrara the stronghold that had bedeviled the forces of Venice and of the Pope. But the Pope no longer cared for Ferrar. His mind was fixed on Bologna. 
He longed to return Bologna to the papal flock. Though the Spanish had captured the bastion, though Ferrara was but a few miles away, the Spanish took their massive force to Bologna to regain the beloved city for the Pope. The mighty legions of Spain bore down upon Bologna with irresistible force. In Ravenna, in Rome, allies of Spain waited with bated breath. Would the Bentivoglio even fight for Bologna? Many doubted it. Most thought the Bentivoglio would make a replay of their actions from five years ago, when they left the city at that time, loaded down with treasure, and then headed into a comfortable exile. Guido was in Venice at the time for an important mission, and if anyone there bothered to ask his opinion, if anyone wanted to know from him if his Bentivoglio relatives would fight, he never would have had a moment's doubt. He knew his uncles. He knew that they had spent five years on the run with one thought on their mind. And there was no way they would give up Bologna without a fight, so long as they had at least one powerful ally. Many in Venice thought it would not be much of a fight. The Pope was supposed to be the rightful lord of Bologna. The Bentivoglio were supposed to be usurpers, tyrants, loathed by the people of Bologna. As the Spanish army approached, the Bentivoglio had the walls of the city barricaded. They ordered cannons placed to provide counter-battery fire. And most importantly, they called upon the people of Bologna to defend their city. And this they did by the thousands. The men of Bologna came to the ramparts with their swords and their shields, with their pikes and their partisans, with crossbows, and with handguns, and with the fancy newfangled matchlock muskets that would dominate the battlefields of the future. The Spanish general was not impressed. He boasted that he would have Bologna in two days' time. The Spanish had conquered the bastion with mines, with tunnels under the walls of the fortress. The Spanish were sure that it would work here, too. But the frozen ground around Bologna was not so easy to dig through as been the damp earth around the bastion. It was going to take the Spanish more than two days to take the city. In the alliance between Spain and Venice and the Pope, each party was to provide its own unique contribution. The Pope provided leadership and, of course, forgiveness for transgressions. The Spanish, manpower. Venice provided some men, but mostly they provided money. We mentioned that Guido was in Venice on a special mission. He was to be the courier for the Spanish army's payroll. The route between Venice and the Spanish army was open to harassment by the forces of the Duke of Ferrara. The Duke had eyes everywhere in the territory between Venice and Bologna. The Duke and his French allies were just waiting to attack the vital payroll. The Venetians sent one large force of light cavalry as a diversion. This kept the Duke's attention. Meanwhile, Guido Rangoni and his company of 75 men-at-arms brought the Venetian gold, about 200 pounds of it, to the Spanish force besieging Bologna. It was a success for Guido. It further burnished his reputation as a reliable condottiere. But it was bittersweet. In his heart, he still prayed for his uncles to succeed. The Bentivoglio counted upon their French allies to attack the Spanish and raise the siege. Yet rescue from the French was becoming an increasingly remote possibility. The king of France actually sent a messenger to Julius with an offer. The French would remove their protection from Bologna and Ferrara if Julius would dissolve the anti-French alliance of Rome, Venice, Spain, and England, the so-called Holy League. 
All the reports from Bologna indicated the fall of the city was imminent. Julius was convinced the Holy League could get him Bologna and Ferrara, and more. So he ignored the offer. He kept his barber ready to shave away his beard of mourning. Enter the Thunderbolt. He was a 20-year-old general of the French army in Italy. He was newly placed into overall command, ready to write his name into the pages of history. The king ordered him to raise the siege of Bologna. The thunderbolt was tireless, and he drove his men to march faster than anyone thought possible. He set out to save Bologna from the Spanish. They kept an eye on this force. But the Spanish did not anticipate the speed that the Thunderbolt could push his men. A normal army at the time might move five or maybe ten miles in a day. The Thunderbolt pushed his men to make a forced march of thirty miles in a single day. Thirty miles in the snow. After this march, they reached the north side of Bologna and rushed reinforcements into the city. The Spanish commander was not ready to fight the French and their Bolognese and Ferrari's allies all at the same time. The Spanish commander led his troops away to the east, toward the coast, and away from the French. He hoped to draw the French into a trap, where he would be close to his bases of supply while the French would be far from theirs. The aggressive French commander wished to pursue the Spanish forces, but events elsewhere soon would have the Thunderbolt's undivided attention. in Brescia. We must now learn of the new Italian city to understand what happens next in the saga of Hugo Popoli and Guido Rangoni. We must now travel to that beautiful lake country of northern Italy. On the plain near the lakes stands an ancient city known as Brescia. This is a city little known to us now outside of Italy, but in the early 16th century Brescia was famous. Without a doubt the finest weapons in Italy were crafted in the forges of Brescia. This city of smiths is located about halfway between Milan and Verona. In early 1512, Verona represented the front line in the war between Venice and France, and Milan was, of course, the main French base in Italy. By the winter of 1512, the city of Brescia had lived under the yoke of French occupation for three long years. To say that the people of Brescia loathed their French masters is to engage in serious understatement. The citizens of Brescia longed to be rid of the French and desperately sought to rejoin the Republic of Venice. The French were keenly aware of this rebellious fire among the Brescians, but there was little they could do to stop it. Like the coals of a cold campfire, the city just needed a little fuel to ignite. The thunderbolt gave Brescia that fuel. To save Bologna from the Spanish, he had had to strip Brescia of most of its garrison. And as he marched to Bologna, the Brescians seized their moment and revolted. The small French garrison in the city managed to keep the rebellious Brescians in check for a moment, just barely. But the people of Brescia then called upon Venice for help. For Venice, the revolt in Brescia presented them with a great problem. The Brescians were being loyal citizens of the Republic. Their plight commanded all sympathy from Venice. But the strategic situation was something of a nightmare. Brescia was behind enemy lines, way behind enemy lines by the standards of the 16th century. 
The decision would fall upon the shoulders of Andre Gritty. It was a terrible risk to rescue the Brescians when dangerously overextend the Venetian army, but to fail to act would dangerously undercut Venetian authority and prestige. Gritty had always been a risk-taker. He was the man that had retaken Padua when everyone thought Venice was out of the fight. He led what forces he could scrounge together and went west to attack the French once again. The small French force in Brescia could not fight off the combined power of the Venetians and the rebels. They took shelter in the citadel of Brescia and awaited rescue. So far, so good. Gritty called upon John Paul Baglione to keep open the lifeline to Brescia and to send as many reinforcements as he could west to the city. Gritty planned to build up the defenses in Brescia to such a strength that the French could not hope to retake the city. Then he would strike further west and even threaten the city of Milan itself. Bayoni sent most of his men-at-arms and half of his light cavalry to Brescia, but Bayoni held on to Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli. To them fell the unenviable task of keeping open the connection between the Venetian army and Brescia to the west, and the Venetian bases to the east. This Venetian army was like a rose blossom at the end of a long stem, and without fortresses connecting the Venetian army and its bases, this was a rose without thorns. John Paul Bayoni was not a happy camper. He knew how precarious his position was, better than anyone. He had more than 30 years' experience as a condottieri. He had fought in more battles, perhaps, than anyone in Italy at that time. He was the highest-ranking condottieri in Venetian service. Yet despite all of that, John Paul Bayoni was nothing but a hired sword. And when the Venetian governor, Andre Gritti, told him to jump, Bayoni had to ask, how high? Oh, sure, the revolt in Brescia had been a real coup for the Venetians. The French had been running the table just a few weeks before. But the revolt had turned that table against the French and towards the Venetians. There was always the risk the French might do the same back to Venice. The Venetian forces were stretched out from Vicenza in the east to Brescia in the west. As the crow flies, this was about a hundred miles, but of course. The Venetian army was not composed of crows, but of men. Men who had to march on winding, muddy roads. Men who had to try their luck at crossing rivers on makeshift barges, or on narrow bridges that buckled with the weight of winter storms and men crossing. Against them stood a powerful French army, which could essentially strike anywhere along this line of men, strung out in camps along the winding road from Vicenza to Brescia. It was enough to drive a man to drink. Ominous reports were coming to Bayoni from the south. The French had raised the siege of Bologna, and word came that they were coming directly north, straight at Bayoni and his small force. Bayoni had some fortresses to protect himself from the French, but they were far to the south. He hoped these would buy him time to get reinforcements once he had to fight the French. But he also knew the French were in a hurry. Their compatriots were trapped in the citadel of Brescia. They were menaced by the Brescians and the Venetian forces that controlled the city. 
In such a situation, the Thunderwelt might just ignore the Venetian fortresses that Bayoni depended upon. In such a situation, the Thunderbolt might take his chances with a few hostile fortresses behind him. The French could always get more supplies from Verona once they beat Baglioni's army. As if this was not enough to worry about for Baglioni. There were a few thousand enemy troops inside Verona, German troops, only a few miles from Baglioni's main camp. While Baglioni kept one eye out for the approaching French army, he had to cast another worried eye behind him behind him at the German garrison nearby in Verona. They might sally forth and attack him, or the precarious bridges in the area, bridges that the Venetians were depending upon. Believing is seeing. On the night of February 14, 1512, the garrison of Verona attacked Bayoni's camp. Or so it seemed to Bayoni. Alarm suddenly rang out through the camp at four in the morning. Scouts riding the snow-covered fields around the camp had spotted enemy cavalry nearby. We can imagine the mad scramble. It was probably something like one of those movies where a squadron needs to get its fighter planes in the air as quickly as possible. Except for those on sentry duty, the men of the camp were asleep in their tents. Bayoni ordered them to battle as quickly as they could manage it. Among the soldiers in the camp were Guido Rangoni and Hugo Pepoli. Unfortunately for Bayoni and the Venetians, this was not an attack by the garrison from Verona. Oh no. This was the vanguard of the whole French army. The famous Chevalier Bayard was at the front of this force, riding with a small group of French men-at-arms. He was struggling with fever at that time, but at the sight of the enemy, called for a cuirass and made ready for battle. The French closed toward the outer edges of the camp until artillery opened up on them. Bayard and his French troops were soon driven away by a combination of artillery and cavalry surging out of the camp. We can imagine the chaotic scene, men scrambling from their beds looking for their weapons, fumbling to get on their helmets and cuirasses in the dark with cold, numb fingers. Officers barking out orders to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up! The mounted crossbowmen had to put the saddles on themselves, while the men-at-arms had the help of grooms and squires to get themselves ready. Here, then, was the perfect opportunity for Hugo Popoli to get back at Guido for the destruction of Uncle Gerard's palace in Modena. Here was a chance for revenge. Guido would not have been around in the stables. He would have had to go off to find Bayoni to get the situation, to find out his orders. Hugo Popoli could have easily distracted the men in the stables. Hugo Popoli spoke for Bayoni, general of the whole army, and Hugo could have easily called for the men's attention explain that they were under attack, explain that they couldn't wait. He would have told the grooms to cinch up the saddles tight against the horse's belly and told every man to do his duty and what. As he spoke, one of Hugo's men could have easily sidled up next to Rangoni's horse and put a nice cut in the tack, either on the reins or maybe a nice, long, discreet snip along the straps. It wouldn't fail immediately. Wouldn't be obvious at first. It would not fail until Guido Rangoni needed it most when he was fighting. Guido Rangoni was responsible for a carriage full of money, a carriage destined for the army in Brescia. With trouble brewing, Guido did not want to wait for dawn to get the money moving. He wanted to get it across the nearby Mincio River as quickly as possible. He wanted to get the carriage going west to Brescia immediately. Bayoni thought the army was only under attack by the garrison from Verona, a problematic situation, but not a dire one. So he agreed to let Guido Rangoni get the money moving immediately, and then Guido could help out with the main battle. And Guido Rangoni did just that. Under those easy riding conditions, his saddle held up fine. 
Guido made sure the money was on its way across the river, and then he led his men back to the growing battle outside the camp. As the night dragged on, more and more French men-at-arms began to arrive to fight Bayoni's army. The battle was not going well for Bayoni and the Venetians. The arrival of Rangoni's men helped stave off defeat, for a time anyway. So far it had been a fight between French cavalry and a Venetian force composed of all arms. Things started to really turn south once the Thunderbolt got his infantry into the fray. Then French infantry started making it into the battle and making things hard for Venice. The Venetian forces were soon overwhelmed. Guido Rangoni was fighting with his knights against the French knights. Their lances had long since been used up, and now the affair was a game of sword and mace. The kind of fight that involves a lot of twisting. The kind of fight that involves a lot of turning. The kind of fight that required a horse to make sudden movements. The kind of fight that put a great load on a man's saddle. In the midst of this fight, Guido Rangoni's saddle suddenly broke. He fell from his mount and kissed the ground. He was now surrounded by French men-at-arms. Guido's men attacked the French men-at-arms around him, but the French were too strong, too numerous to break through. Guido Rangoni was forced to surrender. Two months before, he had surrendered to a Spaniard and managed to talk his way out of it, but there would be no way of talking his way out of this predicament. He was going to be imprisoned. The rest of Bayoni's army was in a predicament. When it came time to call retreat, things were likely to get ugly, but they could not stay where they were indefinitely. So he ordered a retreat toward the east, back towards Vicenza and Venice. It turned into be something more like a rout. But most of the Venetians were able to make it back to the new camp, to the east. The French infantry were most interested in looting the camp than they were in chasing the Venetians. The French men-at-arms were better disciplined. Vigorous charges by Hugo Popoli and the rest of Bayoni's company kept them at bay, though. Sebastian Manzino's situation was probably typical for the slower-moving infantry. When the retreat ended at the Adige River the next day, he had been robbed, along with all the other men of his company. They managed to keep nothing but their weapons and the clothes on their back. Their possessions back at the camp were gone, but they were alive. French sources give the loss at 1,200 infantry and 90 men-at-arms. According to the Venetians, they had lost 150 infantry and 18 men-at-arms in the battle. They and Bayoni were more concerned by the loss of cannons abandoned to the enemy and the loss of the money for the army in Brescia. Soon the Venetians discovered that the money was not lost at all, that Guido Rangoni had made sure to get it on its way, that it was in Brescia. What the Venetians were most troubled by then was the loss of Guido Rangoni himself. They all believed him to have been killed in the battle, but they were pleased to discover that he had been captured and was being held for ransom. Hugo Popoli was not pleased to hear that Guido Rangoni was still alive, but Guido was still on ice, and more to the point, he was going to have to come up with an enormous sum of gold before he was free. It was still suitable revenge for what Guido and his supporters had done to the palace of Hugo's Uncle Gerard. And sweet, sweet revenge was everyone's favorite dessert in Renaissance Italy. And that concludes another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast.